Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Ben Stockdale. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. This is Jarvis Arrington, the intern for the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Bringing the latest in clean energy right to your ears. Yes, sir. Now, we have a great guest on today's show, don't we? We always have great guests, Jarvis. You know this. That's true. That's true. I mean, NASA, Governor Roy Cooper, Google, Microsoft, and an NBA all-star. I mean, I don't know how we can even top that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we, we did top it. We topped it today. We have a foundational, crucial episode with Tiffany Hartung from the North Carolina chapter of the Nature Conservancy. She's talking about best practices in solar, specifically utility-scale solar, which is so important as North Carolina continues to build on our reputation, both as a leader in solar energy, you know, we're number two nationally, and both a leader in low-impact design. So this is going to be a really great episode. I definitely agree with you saying that it's a foundational episode. Um, And Ben and I are very well aware that we have a lot of solar developer listeners and a lot of people in the solar industry. So this episode is going to be perfect for people interested in clean energy done right. Yeah, clean energy done right, but also looking back and seeing the things that are already undergoing that have really pushed North Carolina's industry into a place of having a good reputation. Exactly. Now, Ben, where are we heading for today's country shout out? We are jet setting to Europe and saying guten tag to our listeners in Germany. So thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. And Jarvis, which city is getting a shout out today? We are giving a squeaky clean shout out to our listeners in the hometown of our studio of uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. Yes, sir. Raleigh, North Carolina. 919. 919, baby. Let's go. City of Oaks, City of Oaks. <laughs> Definitely. Well, City of Oaks makes sense because we're trying to conserve the oaks on this episode. And uh, without further ado, Jarvis, should we jump into it? Yep, let's get into it. Clean energy. Our guest today serves as the Climate and Energy Policy Manager for the North Carolina chapter of the Nature Conservancy, where her work focuses on building broader support for climate action. She also supports the chapter's work to promote low-impact, utility-scale solar development through responsible siting and design. Prior to joining the Nature Conservancy, our guest served as the Coalition Manager for the Maryland Climate Coalition, helping to expand the state's clean energy and climate policies and maintain Maryland's position as a leader on climate. She also managed the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign team in Michigan, working to ensure that the state's future electric needs are met in the cleanest, smartest, and most affordable ways. She has deep roots in organizing and bringing together community stakeholders Holders. So, friends of the pod, let's give a squeaky clean welcome to today's very special guest, Tiffany Hartung. Tiffany, 
Welcome to the pod. Thanks, Ben. Excited to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here. I know we've talked about the podcast in the past, so it's nice to finally get you on and uh, here in the studio. Yeah, I'm a big fan, so this is this is exciting. Awesome, awesome. Well, let's go ahead and get started. So, can you talk a little bit about what the con- what the Nature Conservancy is, what y'all do, and what do you specifically do there? Sure. Uh, The Nature Conservancy is a global organization that works to conserve the lands and water on which all life depends. Uh, In North Carolina, the Conservancy has protected over 700,000 acres across the state. That ranges from places like Grandfather Mountain to Jockey's Ridge. Uh, In my role, I'm the Climate and Energy Policy Manager for the North Carolina chapter, and I work to help the chapter build broader support for climate action and I'm a part of the team that's working to promote uh, and develop best practices for low-impact ground mount solar. Awesome. So, you know, we're here to talk about best practices in solar. That's the topic of our conversation. Why is a conservation organization interested in solar at all? That's a fair question. Very fair question. So we started uh, in this area of work because as a land trust, we are trying to balance out our balance our interest in tackling climate change, which is increasingly important and uh, a really urgent need, with our interest around land development. And North Carolina is a is leader in solar, which is exciting news. Number and two in the country. Number two, we're number two, uh, and it's great news for a transition to a clean energy economy. But more recently, we've really uh, been seeing a an increase in the size of solar projects. So solar projects, you know ranging from 50 acres, now we're seeing a lot more that are maybe a thousand acres plus. Um, and, and we're really concerned that, um, or we're, we're concerned about seeing the ecosystem impacts of, the, of clean energy development and trying to, trying to figure that out. Uh, so we, you know, Nature Conservancy supports accelerating the renewable energy economy, and we really want to help facilitate uh, an increased pace of solar deployment. Uh, and so we're trying to help figure out a way for uh, to, to cite it, uh, cite it in a way that has lower impacts um, and, and design it in a way that also has lo- less impacts. Yeah, I think that's really important because when you talk about solar, you're talking about a zero emissions source of energy, but that doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't have impact on the environment. And when we're installing solar anywhere, it's really important that we follow the best practices that are going to create the lowest impact on the environment. So what is low-impact solar design? Yeah, that's right. So low-impact solar design is, uh, it means minimizing the development impacts to wildlife and habitat. So a lot of places around the country you're hearing and seeing talk about pollinator-friendly solar. Uh, that's one of those best practices, um, and uh, what that does is um, sort of using incorporating na- native vegetation and pollinator vegetation to help improve the habitat there and and support pollinators. And when we're talking about pollinators, are we really are we really just talking about bees? Are there other? Are we talking about birds as well, or what what are we talking about when we say pollinators? Yeah, so it's bees, uh, but po- the po- pollinators range from a whole number of insect species a- as well as uh, bird species. Uh, there's even even a number of insects beyond bees. Uh, bees are, and pollinators in general are important uh, because we all love pollinators. But it's also important and we for all agriculture. Love honey. 
We all love honey, <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, it's also important for agriculture. And a lot, thinking about where a lot of uh, these uh, solar facilities are located is near, near our neighboring agricultural areas. So there, there can be a, a co-benefit there of helping, helping with agriculture. It seems like we would try to get low impact solar design in every project that we, that we install, but, but why specifically is it important for new projects coming online? It is, so, you know, historically, looking back at, in North Carolina, um, about half of the acres uh, that have been converted for solar, solar development have involved uh, clearing of trees. Um, and so as we're seeing, particularly these larger solar developments, it's more important to help uh, um, design and uh, site uh, appropriately uh, these, these facilities so they better fit into the natural landscape. So thinking about um, some of the other, you know, th talked about pollinators and native vegetation, uh, but the, one of the other areas that, that we're looking at in the Nature Conservancy here in North Carolina is uh, helping to, to figure out and working with some de developers to figure out is how to reduce the, um, uh, the impact to wildlife in terms of the, the um, fencing being a barrier for wildlife movement. So, um, so the, particularly the, the larger scale solar projects, uh, most solar projects have a, a chain link fence around them. And if you have a thousand plus acre solar project, uh, that, that solar fen that fencing prohibits wildlife from passing through uh, the solar project. Um, uh, so then that's not so much of a, a big deal for a deer or something. Um, but if you're a turtle, it's kind of a bigger deal. Uh, so there, one other best practice that we've been sort of working to develop and working with developers on here in North Carolina is um, designing so that allowing for wildlife movement. Um, so that it's um, less of a fragmenting feature and a barrier for wildlife movement. So what that looks like, and we're calling it uh, wildlife-friendly solar, uh, what that ends up looking like is you have, uh, using a different type of fencing, fencing that instead of the chain link has uh, bigger holes in it, so yeah. it allows for smaller animals like foxes, turtles to pass through. Um, or um, another area that we're beginning to explore further is uh, incorporating wildlife passageways. So un unfenced areas through the solar site that allow uh, wildlife to pass through a larger facility. Yeah, I was actually at an Ecoplexus uh, project yesterday in Curatuck with Representative Zoka and Representative Hainig, and they were talking about the fence that they put up as being wildlife friendly and it looked almost, I don't know exactly what the material was, but it almost looked like mesh. Like it looked like it was a it had a little more give to it than a normal chain link fence. And the, the pattern was squares and they were probably about six or eight inches wide. So, you know, something like a fox might be able to get through that. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, that's exactly what we're talking about. And Ecoplexus is one of the developers that's been trying to incorporate some of these practices. Um, yeah, that's a, I believe the type of fencing, it's a, a type of fencing called a deer buster fencing. Uh, and uh, Bird's Eye Renewable Energy uh, is actually the developer that sort of figured out that practice and started, uh, began starting to use it. And, uh, it is. It's exactly like that. It has a. It has a little more give, but the the sizes of the holes are larger than chain link, and um, the way that it is, if you install it upside down, because the bigger holes are at the bottom, it allows for uh, smaller critters to pass through. So we've worked with 
uh, some of the developers here in North Carolina and um, put up camera traps to, to test and see if this is actually uh, being used by animals. And um, my colleague Liz Kayleys has gotten some really great videos, cute videos uh -huh. and pictures of foxes and uh, raccoons and possums and other animals sort of just passing through the fence like it wasn't even there. Cool. So it's really working. Yeah, it, it's working. Yeah. That's uh, and and uh, we're seeing um, these animals sort of just pass pass through the fence, but also begin to use the the space with inside the the solar site as well. And what's what's been your experience working with developers? Do they seem to be open to the ideas that you're presenting, or do you encounter some pushback? What's what's the relationship that you're developing with uh, solar developers? Yeah, we've been we've had some great partnerships with a number of developers here in North Carolina. Um, and in, we you know, really started uh, just a couple of years ago working to, to sort of test and develop and figure out these best practices because this is a bit newer territory, particularly the, the wildlife uh, piece. Um, and so we've had some great experiences working with developers to uh, try to, 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 to do some pilot projects and demonstration sites to, uh, to test these these best practices and then allowing us to come out and monitor uh, and see if the, the, the practices have been effective. We love giving shout outs on this show. Do you want to give shout outs to any of the partners that you're working with? I would love to. We've had some great partners. So uh, I mentioned Bird's Eye and Ecoplexus are doing some good work. Uh, Pinegate Renewables has also been a, a great partner. They have a program called Solar Culture, which is where they're incorporating, they're using native vegetation and fencing in, in, in those solar culture programs uh, and really trying to, to um, incorporate this uh, into more of their projects. Um, Strata Solar has also been a partner that we've been working with. Uh, they're incorporating uh, native vegetation or the pollinator vegetation, uh, and so they've been a good partner as well. And also allowing, you know, all of these uh, developers have sort of really given us great access to the sites to help uh, to allow us to monitor and test these practices. All of those are NCSEA members, so we're really happy to hear that. <laughs> North Carolina, as we just said, is second in the nation in, in installed solar, but we're also a leader in the low impact design that you're talking about. How did we get this reputation? Yeah, those two uh, are not unrelated. Um, we are, um, it's it really being such a leader in solar has uh, created, an, is, uh, created a unique opportunity here in North Carolina to, to, to try to figure this out and be some proving grounds. Um, so the Nature Conservancy, uh, we began working with uh, wildlife agencies in North Carolina and solar developers, as I mentioned, to try to figure out how we can continue to expand solar generation, but in a, in a lower impact way. Um, so we worked with, um, started working with the, the, the North Carolina Pollinator Conservation Alliance, who uh, has some great, um, they put together pollinator, uh, pollinator technical guidance for pollinators for North Carolina. So uh, that's a great resource uh, for developers. Uh, so we worked with them, uh, as well as other wildlife agencies, uh, and sort of really started to, to test these practices, uh, both using the native vegetation and um, ways to minimize impacts to wildlife. Are you finding that most of these low impact designs are really on like the front end of a project design? 
are you seeing any projects that are doing stuff like this retroactively? And is there any opportunity for us to go back to some of these sites that might not have employed the best practices and incorporate some of these low impact design aspects? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, absolutely. So that it's most it's easiest and most affordable certainly to do to do these on the front end and to to if you're only going to put fencing up once, uh, best to do it on the front end. Um, and the wild of permeable fencing is uh, cost competitive to traditional chain link. So uh, it's a matter of really sort of thinking about this on the front front end is easiest. Um, and but there are we are seeing um, some projects that are uh, retrofits, uh, particularly using native vegetation uh, in store installing uh, native vegetation and uh, making that work. So there are some developers that are doing that, but it's it's easiest to do it on the front end. Uh, I, I would also say that, you know, one of the thinking about, um, you know, one of one of the most important aspects of of this is siting, and uh, we're, the Nature Conservancy we're not usually involved in uh, with the solar developers on, at that aspect of the planning, uh, but siting, um, it, it's, it's sort of the. Um, is, is one of the more critical uh, aspects of uh, figuring out how these facilities can fit in the natural landscape or not putting them in, in, in critical areas. And so, you know, we, we, you know, if there's developers that are out there listening that are interested in this, we'd love to work with you. I'd encourage you to, to reach out to us um, or thinking about, particularly in designing the wildlife passageways, uh, the, the sort of unfenced area passageways through the projects. Um, that's something that uh, from what I understand, what developers tell us is uh, certainly some, one of those things that on the front end of the project is uh, is more critical. Are there any economic benefits or opportunities for these low impact design areas? I know you mentioned uh, pollinators. You know, I know that there are projects with sheep, some even with donkeys. So, what? Why would a solar developer beyond uh, trying to reduce their impact? What also might be in it for the solar developer? Yeah, I think, you know, at, at, we're certainly the Nature Conservancy. One of our next steps with this work is looking for ways to incentivize this, uh, the incorporation of, of these best practices into all projects so that there's an incentive, an additional incentive for developers. Uh, but I think that right now, one of the, the incentives to it is that, you know, certainly in North Carolina and I know in other parts of the country, we're seeing uh, concern neighbors who are concerned about um, the aesthetics or wildlife impacts of you know utility scale solar, and so uh, incorporating these best practices helps reduce the impacts to wildlife um, and maybe addresses some of those those concerns. So I think I think there's a, a probably a, a value to incorporating these best practices to the, the uh, at the community level. There might be more community interest in this. Yeah, because I was at the Ecoplexus site, and one of the things that the tour guide, uh, John Morrison, was saying is that not only is this good for wildlife, it also just looks better. You know, I mean, a lot of these chain link fence look very institutional, but this this more mesh-like fence, had I felt like was a lot more aesthetically pleasing. It kind of blended in more with the background, so it was nice to see that farm with that fence around it. Yeah, it is. It certainly... it. Um using some vegetation around it as well as inside uh, of the fence it, it it certainly it looks a lot nicer it's yeah. a lot prettier and that's and that matters a lot because a lot of these times these solar farms are 
right around other neighborhoods, right around people who have their homes and live there and having something that is more aesthetically pleasing and maybe even enhances the way that the area looks, I think is really important. It is. Um, I think there, there's also some value to, uh, on the at once the native vegetation is established, there is a little bit less maintenance. Uh, so developers will talk about having to have, you know, have it mowed and spraying inside there and there's a, a risk of the mowing equipment damaging the solar panels. Uh, so every time they're in there mowing, there is a, a, a risk of that and that's a, a costly expense. And so the having to mow less, um, I think that there is some other maintenance that is needed. It's a, it's a different type of process, but having to mow less will um, create potentially create some savings in the long run. Right, yeah, the the conversation that I was having with someone from Ecoplexus was that the native vegetation that they would have wouldn't grow above the solar panels. So like you're saying, it eliminates that need for, for constant maintenance and then also allows uh, more space for pollinators. Yeah, pollinators and it also creates habitat. So if we're using if, if uh, animals are sort of within the, the solar farm site, um, having that sort of vegetation that's higher growing than traditional turf grass or gravel, it's, it's a little bit higher, you know, a foot or a foot and a half off the ground that creates a, a cover uh, as well as foraging area for animals. So there's a, a lot of benefits to it. Yeah, and it seems to me like, you know, you have these solar projects that are gonna be around for 20 years that's a lot of time for these habitats to develop and really become ecosystems for a lot of animals and wildlife. It is. Um, and, it, you know, one of the other things that we're, we've, are, are sort of excited about with, particularly with, the, with some of this, is that um, there's a, a possibility of um, helping to sort of, in some areas, helping to restore, using native vegetation, helping to restore habitat and native species there. So, for example, um, thinking about agricultural land or other degraded, degraded sites, you, uh, planting native vegetation is helping to restore what once was there or is something that's a little more natural fit to what should be there. Um, in, in North Carolina, uh, on, in the Piedmont region, um, there used to be Piedmont prairies and Piedmont prairie grasses. And so there could be an opportunity in, those, in that region of the state to be reseeding with uh, that type of vegetation um, and helping to actually restore some areas. Wow, so solar can be really part of the solution too. It can, yeah. Awesome, we love On multiple that. fronts. <laughs> definitely, definitely. What do you see as the main challenges for the adoption of these best practices? Yeah, so w we have some challenges. It's, it's been really great to work with all those developers we gave some shout outs to. Uh, and those partners, that they've been great partners. Uh, and as we've been, it's been a, a work in progress, this work, figuring this out and trying to get some uh, demonstration sites uh, on the ground. Um, and as we've been doing that, they've been working with us to help identify what those challenges are and how can we work through them. Um, so it's been a learning experience on our end, uh, for trying to understand the developer's perspective. Um, uh, one of the one of the challenges that you know we we've sort of run up against is that every site is different, uh, both from uh, soil makeup and environmental conditions are all different. So that means that every site might mean mean a different seed mix and a different implementation plan, and that's it's not a cookie cutter approach, which is just makes just a challenge it just makes things a little bit a little bit different um, and in, in another area another re challenge here particularly for our region is that 
um, we, 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 have a, we don't really have the, the pipeline of native vegetation seeds readily available, not at this scale uh, that we could, could use or um, need. Uh, and it takes some time to develop that. That's, not that's, that's true for North Carolina. It's not necessarily true for other parts of the country. I know in the Midwest where they've been doing a lot of prairie restoration for years, that's not the case there. But in our region, uh, there's a little bit of a bottleneck in terms of, of uh, seed the seed pipeline. Interesting. So there really just aren't enough seeds to cover these vast acre solar farms, right? Yeah, we're getting there. I, I think the seed producers are working on that, and it's something the North Carolina Pollinator Conservation Alliance is working uh, to try to get ready for uh, and be able to be able to sort of figure out. Interesting. And how long will it would it take? You know, seeds in the ground. How long does it take to kind of you know? At what point do you say, oh, this has been restored to its natural vegetation? How long does that usually take? Uh, I think so. Well, what, what we're seeing is that it's not um, maybe we're using native vegetation, but it's not so particularly. I guess with the Piedmont Prairie, it could be closer to close to native vegetation, but in some of these other areas where it's uh, the it's native vegetation, but it's maybe a mix of what maybe once was there, or uh, it, it, it's, it's a mix of stuff. So it's not exactly sort of, you know, 100% what it used to be. <laughs> but um, it, I think your point about how long does it take to, to sort of get going and get established is a good one. It, it, it is a longer, it does take longer to get established. And um, and it, it's a couple seasons before it really starts to to bloom and look good. I think what the, our folks say is about it's about three years before they're really blooming and really looking pretty, like some of the pictures you've seen. Uh, the first couple years, it's a little scruffier, and it's in those po process points, it's also going to require some uh, some maintenance uh, in between to sort of help allow that vegetation to get established. But again, these projects are going to be in the ground for you know more than twenty years, some of them. So we got plenty of time, right? Yeah, that's right. Awesome. What are you most excited about when it comes to the future of solar design? Yeah, so um, I think, um, as I mentioned, the, the possibility for incorporating these best practices to improve habitat quality over what was there or is there today in some areas. Um, and then also the, the idea of that, that we, I, I really see that we have an opportunity right now uh, with uh, the need to scale up renewable development, and we have an opportunity to try to figure some of this out and to get this right uh, while we're both sort of trying to reduce our climate emissions and meet our growing energy needs. Uh, but we have, we have an opportunity to uh, incorporate siting and design in, as, we, as we do that now. Um, and uh, so it's an exciting time to be trying to figure this out, and, uh, and it's uh, a, a bit of just figuring it out and working through it. So what are those next steps? What are, what are, what's kind of the, the next step for the immediate future of low impact design? Yeah, so our team at the Nature Conservancy in North Carolina, uh, they're pretty focused on uh, looking at incorporating unfenced wildlife passageways into larger projects. Um, so in a, really helping to improve that wildlife c connectivity. And so that's the thousand acre plus sites, uh, looking at doing more of that and working with more developers on that. Um, and then also, as I mentioned earlier, really looking at trying to figure out how can we incentivize incorporating these best practices into all projects uh, and looking at, looking at ways to do that. Awesome. 
Well, Tiffany, this has been an awesome conversation on best practices for solar. I know we have a lot of people in the solar industry that are listening, so uh, you mentioned it before, but if they want to ensure that their projects have low impact design, how can they contact the Nature Sure. Uh, they can reach out to the Nature Conservancy. Reach out to me at tiffany.hartung, H-A-R-T-U-N-G, at tnc.org. Uh, I would also encourage um, to them to uh, download our, our North Carolina-specific guidance around this. Uh, and you can just find that just by Googling principles of low-impact solar siting and design. Uh, and then also want to sort of give a plug for the North Carolina Pollinator Conservation Alliance guidance, which is um, their guidance. You can go to their website, the North Carolina Pollinator Conservation Alliance, and that guidance is called the North Carolina Technical Guidance for Native Planting on Solar Sites. Fantastic. Well, Tiffany, we learned so much. This is really important work. I think that it's something that obviously every developer needs to keep in mind when they're uh, going to be putting solar panels in the ground. So thank you so much for being here and thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Ben. And there you have it, folks. The 21st episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Bring in the latest in clean energy right to your ears. Yes, sir. I feel very lucky to have been in the studio for this interview. I really feel like Tiffany Hartung really made a lot of great points about better practices. And I, for one, learned a lot. Yeah, I learned a lot too. I think she's doing really important work and especially as North Carolina continues to advance our solar industry, you know, we're already number two in the nation, so we already have a reputation, but we want to continue to build on our reputation of having really good low impact design. I 100% agree with you. Uh, ben, what do you think your biggest takeaway from today's show was? So my key takeaway is that low impact solar design not only eliminates some of the issues that folks have with solar, but it also can address some of the environmental issues that naturally occur when you have development. And I'm really talking about restoring native species of plants to these solar facilities. So I think that not only are you eliminating some of the issues when you employ best practices, but you're also starting to take steps towards healing the environment and bringing back some of these species that otherwise wouldn't be there. I definitely agree. And Jarvis, what's your key takeaway? Uh, my key takeaway draws on what Tiffany was saying about integrating solar projects into ecosystems. Uh, with the use of things like deer buster fencing and wildlife friendly passages. Um, usually better practices would be assumed to be more expensive, when in reality they're just as cost effective as traditional practices. And lastly, we love getting the most bang for our buck, and that's what low impact design can do. Absolutely, getting that bang for our buck. Yes, that's sir. That's what we want. And Jarvis, what is next for Squeaky Clean? I think I can answer that. Whoa! <laughs> Who's that? Who's this? that? It's coming out of nowhere. Who are we talking to right now? Uh, so I'm, I'm Daniel Parker. I'm a market research analyst here at NCSEA. I saw you guys recording the pod. I figured I'd drop by. Yeah, who let you in, man? I didn't yeah, I'm, see you. I'm kind of scared. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even see you, you sneak in. You need a lock on the door. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Daniel, what are we going to be talking about on our next episode with you? Uh, next episode, we're going to be talking about geothermal uh, and geothermal uh, technologies in general, but especially how it uh, relates. North Carolina. 
Awesome. Well, really looking forward to that show. I'm sure it's going to be a good one. Please don't scare us like you did this time. But uh, Seriously. <laughs> but we're happy to have you, Daniel. Welcome to the show. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to that episode with you coming up. And we want to thank you so much for listening on the show. Have a great day and we'll see you next time. Have a good one.